morning. Strong hat game going on this this morning. Some of y'all, some of y'all are really dialing it up. You're still gonna have to compete really hard to beat the preacher, but let's just be honest. Hats are where it's at. So my name is Jason. If we haven't met, welcome to this little place. Uh, today is Stan, the great Stan Mitchell's birthday. So what if we sing to him happy birthday? What if we did it in Spanish? Anybody knows what uh, you, you sing in Spanish? It's not happy birthday. No, no, it's not that trend. No, no. You, go, you gotta go. Estas son las mañanitas que cantaba el rey David. This is for you, Stan. Hoy por ser día de tu santo, te las cantamos a ti. Anyway. I learned it for karaoke once, and also because I lived in Mexico for most of my life, but um, happy birthday, Stan. We love you. He's preaching at Grace Point today in Nashville. I asked if he'd be tuning in. We could have further embarrassed ourselves, but uh, you know, I think we've sufficiently done that, so time to move on. So morning all. So addition by way of subtraction. That's our theme for this Lenten season. It's the, chose, it's the theme that I chose, and if you know anything whatsoever about me, you know that I always preach from what's most real to me at the moment. That's how I do it. I think that's what the craft is about. That's how I, so right now, more than ever, here's the thing that you need to know. Right now, more than ever, I need to believe, and perhaps the same is true for you, that better things can grow where other things once thrived. That's the story of Easter. That's the story of it all right there. Being a pastor, any pastors in the room, any pastor's kids in the room, I'd love to see your hands. Don't ever confess that publicly. Y'all know better. <laughs> Straightest line from, uh, from that gray chair to, the, you know, to your psychologist, just follow the pastor's kids. We're, we're, we're on that trail. But being a pastor is a strangely transparent affair. Am I right, Anders? It's possible for you to figure out, if you're paying close attention, exactly where I'm at spiritually. I spend hours every week in silence pulling from ancient texts exactly what I need to hear, hoping that you do too. Then we circle up here in this strange little place and I speak to myself publicly, believing that the gospel that I quarry out of ironstone sometimes is something that you might also need to hear. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Well, I've just been away for 10 glorious days and while I, was, while I was away, and while time away is always treasured, and listen, no one is overworking me around here, I get plenty of time off, but, but finally getting some distance between myself and Austin, it's always a treasure to do that. I, but, I, but the truth is, is I missed us. I missed you, and I missed this. I missed the work that we're doing together. I feel in some ways like I found the work that I was born to do, and I know that's a privilege. Now hear me close. You're going to pick up all the clues you need from my vacation if you pay close enough attention. Nothing to me is more enjoyable than touring the English countryside on beautiful motorcycles, popping in and out of village pubs. Nothing is better than that. Nothing makes this guy smile more than watching Chelsea, the champions of Europe, with Mason Mount uh, driving the, the, the right flank there. Nothing brings me more joy than watching them beat Newcastle at home with my daughter inside the legendary Stamford Bridge from the 16th row. Nothing is better than that. Nothing is more delightful than epic holidays with wonderful curry and supercars and endless ancient pubs and castles and alpacas named Disco and Doug. Nothing is better than being on vacation with people that I truly love. Nothing that is except knowing that when it's all over and when I've had my fill, I get to come back to a place like this, to a community that I love, that is courageous, to a group of people that I feel like are on mission for God in the city. So I don't have small feelings about this little church in case you wondered or who we are or where we are or what lies ahead of us now. 
You were in really good hands two weeks ago with Trey, and you were in good hands with my boss, Laura, last week, but it's really, really good to be home. Always the best part of traveling for me is when you get on that last flight bound for Austin. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's some strange places in the world that any gate with an Austin-bound plane feels familiar to me immediately. So it's good to be back. So we're in our fourth week of Lent now, and we're looking at the recollections of Luke, the physician, through the following lens, and I said it already, addition by way of subtraction. And here's the basic idea, and this is why this matters. We live saturated all the time. Extra margin and unused capacity have gone the way of the woolly mammoth. We haven't seen the likes of them in years. All we know is busy, full, saturated, to the brim, always. Therefore, if anything good is to be added to our already full lives, something first will have to be subtracted. Truly, friends, history has probably never borne witness to a people as full as us. Now, there's no necessarily any shame in that. It's just a fact. It's a fact perhaps brought to the surface of my mind by drinking dank pints of local bitter in pewter mugs in 500-year-old English pubs all around the countryside. You see, our lives used to be simple. They aren't simple anymore. Our internal tachometer runs at about 9,000 RPMs all the time, nearly all the time, a lot like a 911 GT3 RS, Jay, in case you wondered. You're getting all the clues of what we did. It's all there, man. For most of us, you see, hunger is a stranger, and so is thirst, and even boredom now is on the brink of extinction What with the entire world in the palm of our hands. We aren't accustomed to waiting or wanting or anticipating. It nearly kills us to find the patience to wait for what we want, to wait long enough to see it. So much so that many of us automatically assume that waiting itself is a curse from God. We rebuke the seasons of want and longing and lack and unfulfilled anticipation as if they were proof of God's amnesia or worse, proof of God's total abandon of us. And if I'm not careful, I, like you, find myself praying against the very mechanism by which heaven itself is growing in me the things I seek. I'm speaking, of course, of the wilderness, in case that wasn't clear, which is, of course, the central metaphor of Lent, which is also why Lent is such a gift to us. We hate the wilderness, don't we? But there's no denying that it recenters us every spring right on cue. It allows us to accept again the means by which true satisfaction and lasting contentment can take root and thrive and flourish on the insides. Lent prepares us for Easter. And Easter, as you well know, has an upside and a downside. There's good and there's bad news. You ready for it? The upside is new life, resurrection, new beginnings. The downside, I regret to inform you, dear friend, is what the newness is made of. It's made of old things, former things, beloved things, dead things, things taken, things stolen, things that have fallen sometimes before their time, things that gasped their last so that other new and fresher things might take their place. So let's read Luke's reflections now from the 15th chapter. It's a bit of a lengthy read, but follow along. Some of it might be familiar. Chapter 15, verse 1, Luke writes, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Of course, talking about Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Actually, he told them three. And then it skipped, the lectionary skips to verse 11. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will someday, in parentheses, that's my language, that will someday belong to me. So he divided his property between them. 
A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. Just out of curiosity, what does dissolute mean? Anyone? It means wasteful, just in case you wondered. It doesn't mean prostitutes. We insert that. Somehow in the American church, we need everybody to be like loose in order for us to feel real big about them. There's absolutely no textual clue here except the older brother's interpretation, which we know heavily skewed based on hatred and anger. Anyway, that's just for free. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, I think he was a gambler. He was into Bitcoin. You know the revolution disguised as a casino? <laughs> All the millennials in the room said, uh-uh, you just got to get on board. Anyway, when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods, at least the pigs were vegan, with the the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, oh, that moment, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father will argue that later. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. Then the son said to him, just as he practiced, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, as if snapping his fingers, quickly bring this man a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found and they began to celebrate. And then verse 25 to fill out the story. Now, this elder, now his elder son was in the field right exactly where he probably should have been. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the slaves and he asked what was going on and he replied, the slave did, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you. Maybe that was the problem. He was his son anyway. And I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Allegation. Strike that from the record, Your Honor. It's an unfounded claim. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has now come to life. He was lost and has been found. Blessed be the reading of the word. So I'm curious, and I'm, you know what? It's 11 o'clock. We can run the clock as long as we want. What strikes you about this passage, anyone? What strikes you about this? What shocks you? There's no shock in the room at 11 o'clock. The grace, yeah, yeah. What else? What shocks you? No explanations were required. How stunning. You're, you're way ahead of me. Slow down a little bit. You know what? In the interim, pop on Facebook and wish Stan a happy birthday, and then, and then I'll catch up to you in just a minute. By the way, don't let the sun go down tonight without expressing your, your gratitude to Stan. He's like an uncle to us, and uh, don't just say happy birthday. Tell him you love him. Do that today. That's your homework. 
What else? What shocks you? The, mm, the older son was the last to hear about the party, right? Is that a trip? I think he probably had at least some reason to be upset, wouldn't you? I mean, which of the characters of these three characters do you identify with the most? Now, you don't have to confess this. This is Sunday morning. It's not Saturday at 5. We're okay. But which one do you identify the most? And are you aware that there are actually most likely, the better way to look at this is that there are actually four characters in this story. Can you pick out the fourth? It's the fellows asking the question that prompted the parables to begin with. Very present, because every word Jesus is using in response is directed at their questions. How dare you? How dare you? And this is the response he gives. So not to overstate the case, and of course, any sentence in English that begins with not to, just know that it's the opposite of what it's intended. So like, this is not about the money, it's going to be about, about the money, or not to change the subject, but here comes the subject change. Not to overstate the case, but this might be the central parable in my mind of Jesus' entire teaching, which of course is an overstatement, I get it. But it comes at the end of my three all-time favorite parables, all featuring lost things found. Now remember, parables were Jesus' preferred way of teaching. He probably isn't telling actual stories about actual people. In fact, he isn't, okay? So much as he's offering composites, templates, examples, uh, all designed intentionally to trigger the imagination of the listener, oftentimes by tripping the trigger of cultural, you know, acceptable things. He used parables to describe the way things work in the circle of mutual empowerment, or if you must interpret it this way, the kingdom of God, that he came to remind us that we were made for. This is what he's doing. So don't go looking for archaeological evidence of a prodigal son. You won't find it. Plus, that would be one big adventure and missing the point. You are actually all of the characters in all of the parables of Jesus if your heart is open all the way. Just take that to the bank. To call this parable the parable of the prodigal son might, might overly simplify the plot line, to be honest. This is a story about two sons and a father and joy and memory. And almost as important as the characters themselves in the story, this is a particular story about the place that it falls in the public ministry of Jesus. Let me see if I can explain some context here. The first three verses of Luke, that open chapter 15, set the context. It tells us who's who and what's going on. And this is the why the lectionary includes it, and it just simply reads this way. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, essentially, how dare you? You're eating with the wrong people, and you're unclean, essentially. So in response to the mounting inquisition, the public inquisition, I might add, Jesus taught three versions of the same basic parable, lost things being found, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then this one, the prodigal son. But this one is different for important reasons that we're about to see. Jesus not only takes the mic when challenged to defend his association with people regarded by the religious establishment as sinners, not only does he do that, but he goes even further and describes heaven's position towards the universal human condition in general. And that's the power of a parable in the hands of Jesus. The Jews, you see, knew a lot about being lost. They knew all about languishing, unremembered, unacknowledged, unseen, and unaccompanied in their struggles to be free. Just remind yourself what point in history these stories are being told to them. But you must understand, in the shame-based, blame-seeking mind, there are at least two reasons for being lost. One of them would be because God forgot about you, and the other one was because you did something stupid to misplace yourself. The latter was the kind of loss that was well-deserved in the Jewish psyche. In fact, it was seen as the just reward for disobeying God. And yet, Jesus came to address both, as it turns out. God forgetting and things being lost. 
He was a master of the popular teaching templates of his day. Talking about lost things was very much on brand for Jesus. And it was a good way to get the crowd to perk up. You know why? Because then as now, people didn't have small feelings about who was found and who was lost. Big national pride and big boundaries between things that were considered clean and unclean, as you know. And the twist here, of course, and what distinguishes this parable from the two that precede it, is that the particular variety of lostness experienced by this prodigal son was 100% self-inflicted. He was lost because he chose to live wildly, wastefully, and wantonly. He unfound himself willingly, which is why this one is my favorite. We're well past dumb sheep and lost coins now by, this, by verse 11. Jesus was upping the ante in the middle of a public inquisition, so on brand for Jesus. This son, you see, was lost because he chose to be lost. And yet, heaven's response is somehow astonishingly the same. Joy in rediscovery, abundant joy in in the long-awaited homecoming. This wayward son was lost, but he remembered something in that state. Something came to mind, specifically something about his father and the way he treated his hired hands. Memory matters. Remember I said that. But not all memories are the same as it turns out. It matters what you remember. In the end, you see, the son was thinking about begging. but The father was thinking about belonging. This son remembered his sins and his transgressions while this father remembered something far older, something far more true. Memory matters, you see. Remember I said that. And this is the addition by subtraction part because Jesus, after all, isn't just telling stories about a dude with two sons. He's describing what our heavenly father is like. Jesus was saying, and still is if we can hear it, that we need to get rid of some old ideas about God to make room for some new ones. When you think about God, what do you remember? Your last face plant? Your biggest mistake? Or do you remember God's long arm and enduring willingness to begin again and again and again? Face it, if this running to greet the sun while he was still a long way off describes heaven's response to the wicked, the wild, the wanton ways of the wayward and wasteful child, then, oh, I wonder, I wonder if we remember the same thing about ourselves as God does. Now, pause. We mustn't rush now. Let's take our time with this. Remember what I told you. Memory matters. And the fact is, I don't know about you, but I know about me, I seem to always remember something different about myself than what God seems to remember. I suspect the same is true for you. It's as if there's a glitch in our collective recall software. Isn't it interesting how this son remembers the goodness of his father, but he cannot remember his own? So he does what we do. He composes a speech about his unworthiness and spends the whole ride home practicing it. He didn't ride. He walked barefoot, apparently. Just thought I'd bring that up to speed for you. But you know how the story goes. He doesn't even get a chance to deliver the speech that he rehearsed. He had worked his his apology into an Academy Award performance for no purpose whatsoever because he can't even get it all the way out before being rudely interrupted. This broken son in full apology articulation mode gets a talk-to-the-hand response from his dad. Get the party started, says the old man. But wait, says the son. No more waiting, says the father. I'm full to the brim of waiting and watching tonight. We party in style, says this earthly, says this heavenly father. But hang on. Didn't this dad run before he even heard the apology? Could that be right? Yep. 
This father jumped the gun, I'd say. He filled in the gaps on the fly because his memory went way back, way back before errors and gaffes and insults. These two men met on a dusty road that day, smelling of entirely different worlds, both remembering entirely different things. Remorse? What for would say the father? Errors? What errors? Bring robes and rings and roasted veal to the soundtrack of endless rounds of Irish pub reels. That's what the father had on his mind that day. No amount of self-belittling statements of value and shame managed to change the tune this father wanted to sing. You see, sons are sons, daughters are daughters, not servants. He's locked on a melody now, one the younger son can barely hear yet. Oh, what are we looking at, friends? I think we might be seeing behind the curtain now. You see, lost is lost. It doesn't matter why. This father shushes his son mid-sentence because they remember different things. This wayward and wasteful son, dear friends like you and me, was remembering something his father had already chosen to forget. Memory matters. Remember I said that. Memories of sonship had been replaced in the mind of this prodigal with memories of shame. Memories of belonging had given way to memories of blowing his last dime by this careless, this restless spender. And this father, like your heavenly father and mine, was having exactly none of the obsession with short-term memories. None. Oh, friends, this is everything if you can process it. Don't ever forget we talked about this. This is almost more truth about us and about God than our heads can handle. But oh, our hearts, our wise and ancient hearts know this is right. This is how love works. But wait, there's more. Heaven doesn't stop at forgiveness. It never has. I don't care what you were taught in basements of churches on flannel grass. This story is not about forgiveness. This is about the joy of finding what was lost. That's what keeps heavenly bodies in motion. It's what holds the cosmos together, you see. Love does not stop at mere forgiveness. It, here we go, Jay. You ready? Where's Jay? Here we go. It rounds the bend of forgiveness and accelerates through the apex into the straightaway of the totally absurd, of the ridiculous, of the beautiful, of the breathtaking. It's going to be all F1 from now on until the end of the season. What can I say? <laughs> and then if, you, if you're not aware of my allegiance today, anybody can guess what, what driver I'm cheering for? Checo Perez, the first Mexican driver ever to finish, never mind, speaking to a crowd who doesn't understand it. It's all about St. Peter's for this crowd today, right, Trey? Pray for Checo and St. Peter's, that's your, and, and uh, that's your homework for the day. But heaven doesn't stop at forgiveness, friends. It's not about making wrong things right simply to say that they are right. It's about going past all of that to the beautiful. But wait, you say, this child is undeserving. Your mind is whispering to your heart now, that same heart that knows what you're hearing is a far deeper truth. This younger son didn't roll off a cliff like a dumb lamb or roll under the couch like a lost coin. This child rolled the dice in the company of fools again and again until he had nothing left to wager. He's lost because he chose to willfully misplace himself. There's no innocence here, none. But lost is lost in the eyes of heaven. It doesn't matter why. Hear me now, dear ones. Our notions of justice, our versions of fairness, even our sense of propriety all bow to heaven's extravagant and ancient memory. You see, love remembers something entirely different about you and about me than we tend to. Heaven remembers our deepest truth. We are the embodiment of love's desire. We are daughters and sons. We are love. We are made of it entirely. Despite our wild side, despite our wandering, despite our wayward ways, we were always at home in the house of the Father. All. Try never to forget that, friend. 
Now, my first cousin once removed tells me that London runs on coffee, which is funny because England runs on tea, but London runs on coffee. And we're told here in America that America runs on Dunkin', but I'm here to tell you, friends, that heaven runs on joy, specifically on the joy of finding what was lost. The reason why is the thing was lost to begin with never seems to matter. The finding is the point, and of course, the party that follows. Now, imagine with me for just one second. Imagine hearing this scandalous gospel for the first time. Imagine hearing a story like this if you were a wild child. He's in the field where he was supposed to be, the one who never wasted a thing. Imagine hearing this story. Imagine hearing this story, a story like this, if you were the parent who remembered only that love conceived that child so willing to wound you, that child that, that, that's been working so hard to make themselves nothing, but they, they were still your everything, that child that you so longed to see back at home. Imagine, as a parent, if you were hearing this story. And now imagine hearing this story if you were one of the fellows fueling the Inquisition, seeking to prove that Jesus hung out with the wrong people. Who's wrong and who's right now? given the web this rabbi just wove. You are, of course, all of the characters in this parable, sometimes in the same day. Oh, church, does your heart need to hear the gospel like mine does today? So I get it. It's a really big idea. We've got a lot to let go of if we're to accept it. It's going to take some work to metabolize a gospel this big, to give up in order to accept this new vision of God, this new vision of ourselves. Well, only you know the answer to that question. But it would almost certainly have something to do with exchanging ideas about this who wander. This final thought, so musicians be ready. No one leaves 99 sheep to seek a single woolly fool. Wayward son without even hearing his apology. No one does that. No one but love itself. No one but heaven herself. No one but God. And no one but you and I, if we can follow this example. I broke a sweat today. I hope your heart needed to hear the gospel today. Join me on your feet, musicians. You know your thing. I keep expecting at some point, said this at the 9.30, I keep expecting at some point for the good news to just kind of run thin and kind of lose my interest. But friends, I've stood in churches that are 1,200 years old just this week, and the gospel still moves me because it sets us free. I keep thinking there'll be a bottom of the, of, the, of the barrel here that will hit the, you know, when Jim Carrey sails the boat past the movie set and, and the, what's the name of the movie? Come on. Truman Story. Yeah. I keep thinking that this is going to somehow become less inspiring, but friends, it could not feel bigger in my heart and in my soul today, and I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this.